If you are joining us, you haven't been following with us. This is Paul's letter to a church in a place called Corinth, a city in ancient Greece. And we've started in chapter one and we've now made our way through chapter three. It's not the first letter. That's why it's called second Corinthians. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to get that. There's first Corinthians, which was the letter we read over the last nine months. And now we're in second Corinthians, but there's actually four letters that we can see that Paul wrote. The one is that harsh letter he wrote to them. He had to correct a lot of problems in their church. And so he wrote to them first Corinthians to correct some problems that didn't get received so well. So he had to write us another letter that we don't have in our Bible. We don't have it preserved for us. But then he writes this letter, second Corinthians and just a beautiful heartfelt letter reaffirming his love for the people in the church and dealing with still some people in Corinth. Although most of them were with Paul, they were agreeing with him, they were listening to him. There were some still in Corinth that were questioning his authority, questioning his leadership, questioning even his doctrine. So he has to deal with a little bit of that in this letter. You'll see that as we go through. But before we actually get into the passage, my question to you is, have you ever been asked to write a letter of recommendation? Anybody ever written for somebody else a letter of recommendation? How good did you feel about recommending that person? Was it one of those situations where someone came and said, oh, can you write me a letter of recommendation? And you're like, um, no, I'd be glad to. <laughs> uh, sometimes you get someone that comes and asks you to write the letter and you just know them and you've seen their work or you've worked with them and you just know what kind of people they are. And it's easy and joyful to recommend them. It's an easy letter to write. Then sometimes people ask you to write a letter and it's not as easy. Maybe you don't know them as well as a pastor. Oftentimes for various things, people will come to me for letters of recommendation. And sometimes it's really easy to write, as I said, but sometimes I don't really even know the person. So I've got to be careful and delicate and honest all at the same time. Did you know one of the things that's happening now as kids are getting letters of recommendation for college? I guess you need letters of recommendation with your college essays and college application. Well, there's a growing trend in fraud for letters of recommendation because colleges have thousands of applicants and they don't have time to check all this. So kids are writing their own letter of recommendation and people that track this stuff say that there's a real upswing in the amount of fraud with letters of recommendation. How about resumes? Have you written a resume recently? Did you pad it out some? Did you embellish? Did you make yourself, do you look better on paper than in real life? Oh, come on, church. I wasn't born yesterday. I've read resumes. We've written resumes. You go, oh, you know, and then there's sometimes where you do something just because it'll look good on the resume. I got to validate myself. I got to endorse myself. I got to convince these people that I'm worth hiring, that I, I'm sufficient for the job and the task. By the way, 85% of people lie on their or embellish their resumes as well. So I introduced this topic because as we talk about letters of recommendation and references and endorsements and validations and resumes, what you have to realize is that Paul is being put in this uncomfortable place by the people in Corinth because they want to see him have some kind of validation of his ministry. They're challenging his apostleship. There are other people traveling to the church coming as instructors, as teachers of the word, and they have letters of recommendation from places. So now they're questioning Paul. And that's why he begins with saying in verse one, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles or letters? An epistle is just a letter. 
letters of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you. So Paul says, look, do we have to go through this with you? Really? I mean, I'm Paul. Like I planted the church. I gave birth to you guys spiritually. And now you're treating me like you don't even know me. So letters of recommendation were a very common thing in the early church. As you traveled, as a person traveled, they would bring with them a letter from their church that they came from because they couldn't communicate. You couldn't just call up somebody and say, hey, I met this guy named Steve. You know, this guy, he seems weird to me, but do you know him? He comes here, he says he wants to teach a Bible study. You know, should we let him or not? So they couldn't just make that phone call. So you'd show up or someone would show up in a city like Corinth and they'd say, hey, I'm here and I'm a Bible teacher. I'm a prophet. And unless they had a letter, they couldn't call, they couldn't text, they couldn't email to find out who is this person really. Because there was a lot of, just like in our day, there's a lot of scammers. So in the early church, people knew that Christians were known for hospitality. So they would become a self-proclaimed prophet or Bible teacher, and they would travel around and be put up by the church. And if they stayed too long, you knew that they weren't really a prophet. It's kind of like fish. It starts to stink after a few days. You know, you got to get them out of there. So they would travel unless they had a letter of recommendation. They could really scam people and say they're some kind of traveling prophet. So you would send a letter with people to show that you were the real deal. You were validated. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He's not opposed to letters of recommendation. Remember in Romans chapter 16, Phoebe, a woman named Phoebe, carries the letter of Romans. And he writes at the end of the letter, he says, I commend to you my sister Phoebe, she's been a a helper of the ministry. She's been involved with my life. She's really good people. You need to take care of her. You need to open up your home to her, give her what she needs, take care of her. So that was a letter of commendation. So Paul is not against these things, but it's just this tense relationship with the church in Corinth now questioning him and questioning his ministry. Matter of fact, this word commend, it means to stand by. You've recommended something to somebody, haven't you? Hey, you got to watch this movie. You got to try this product. 16 times in the New Testament, this word commend is used. Half of those times, eight of them are only in the book of 2 Corinthians. So you get a sense that Paul is trying to work through and deal with this issue of their doubts about him, but he's very uncomfortable being self-promoting. So watch as we go through and see how he deals with this. Interesting Even in our day, wouldn't it be interesting if people nowadays, although we don't do it, if people traveled with letters of recommendation, because people church hop a lot, go from this church to that church, or, you know, sometimes you move, sometimes there's a falling out, sometimes you get burned or something happens. Wouldn't it be interesting if people traveled now with letters of recommendation? Do you think life is any different now than it was back then? There are people that travel around that just want to get into a church and they want to cause havoc. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. You know, people come to the church and they say, well, tell us about the ministry here and tell us what you got going on here. The church is being interviewed. I mean, wouldn't it be interesting if when you moved on to a different church, you came with a letter of recommendation? Like you say, hey, Steve, you know, we're moving. I need you to write me a letter about my life here at Calvary Chapel. Oh, okay, I'll write you a letter. Dear so-and-so church in such and such a place, be careful of this person. (laughs) They've never done anything around here, or they've brought a lot of problems to us, a lot of headaches. Or would the letter of recommendation say, wow, what a great family. They've been so involved. They've been such supporters of the ministry here. You know, nowadays, it seems that it's the church that's on trial. People want to see, well, what's this church like? Well, maybe we want to know what you're like. What's your track record of serving the Lord? That's sort of what Paul 
has to say. You show up at church, Paul says, you want letters from me? You want something to validate my ministry? Look at verse two. He says, you, you are our epistle, our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is of the heart. So he says, you guys really, you think a letter is going to make you happy? You think I need a, just a, a validation letter, which may, by the way, the ones that were coming and bringing letters, who knows if they're forged or not? You can forge a letter and go anywhere you want, as we talked about. So he says, you think a letter is going to make you happy? Here's my letter. It's you. You are my validation for ministry. You see, people can write anything. It's easy to write something on paper. But Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you can always tell a tree by what, gang? By its fruit. Doesn't matter what's on paper. A church can write about itself, whatever it wants on paper, whatever your statement of faith might say. The real way to know what a church is really about and what is prioritized and how they feel about the teaching of the word is to actually go there and be there for a year. Then you'll see the way we live really shows what we believe really shows the character. So Paul says, you're challenging me. The real deal is you, you want a letter? It's you, you're my letter. Your changed life is my letter. That's the fruit. Here's my endorsement. You see, Paul would say to them, your lives, Corinthians, say more about my ministry than any letter you could write. It's a living letter. You write that letter one time and you send it off. That just gives a snapshot of a person. When you spend time with them, then you see what they're like in all kinds of different scenarios and different situations. Paul taught them the word. He labored. He worked. He taught. It changed their lives. And he could point to them and say, remember, you used to be a drunk, and now you're sober. And you used to be a thief. Now you give. And he could point to them and say, you're changed lives. Look what he says. He says, Not only you're our letter, you're written in our hearts. In other words, our love for you is open and everybody can see it. And you're known and read by everybody. Everybody can see the change in your life. Have you ever thought about that for yourself? That your life is a living letter? You're a living endorsement for the gospel. Have you ever thought about that? You know, nowadays, for years, I'd meet people on the street doing sort of evangelism kind of stuff. And I'd say, Where'd you grow up going to church? And almost everybody would have a story about growing up going to church somewhere. Do you know what I'm talking about? How many of you grew up going to church when you were young? And don't be embarrassed about this. This is going to help me prove my point. Did anybody in here not grow up going to church? Okay, look at that. So some didn't grow up going to church. Now it's more and more and more and more people. So now you ask people, where'd you grow up going to church? I didn't. Have you ever read the Bible? Nope, never cracked it open. We live in a culture that is changed. Church was a mainstay in a large part of our history. Church was part of life. But now we're in what's called the post-Christian era. So people don't take their kids to church anymore. There was a time even when you didn't believe, but well, it's just the right thing to do. We'll raise our kids going to church, which is a mess anyway. That's a whole other story. But now when you go out and you talk to people, there's more and more and more people growing up with no church background. They've never read the Bible that the only thing they're going to know about God is what they learn from the Christian that they're closest to. Now, Paul doesn't say what to do with that. He's just stating a fact. That's the fact, whether we like it or not. If you tell people you're a Christian, they're going to learn about God. They don't know God. They're not going to know anything about God, 
but they're going to know you. And you're the closest thing they're going to get to understanding what the God we talk about is like. That's kind of a sobering comment, isn't it? I'll put it like this. You kind of meet somebody or you know somebody and you've known them for a while and you've watched and they've lost a lot of weight. You see them and they've really slimmed down and you want to slim down and you ask them, I noticed you've lost a lot of weight. How did you do it? What worked for you? And there's a whole slew of diets. I looked up a bunch today. There's the keto diet, the Noom diet, the Weight Watchers, Nordic diet, paleo, flexitarian diet. I found one called the Mind Diet. I don't know what that is, but I imagine it's, well, yeah, don't mind if I have another helping. Sure. That's the Mind Diet. Actually, I heard the definition of diet is not mind over matter. It's mind over platter. (laughs) But, you know, you see someone and you ask, well, you know, I see this change in your life physically And I want to know, how did it happen for you? And then they say to you, well, I'm really glad you asked because they are the biggest endorsement. They're the greatest salesperson for the thing that changed their life. So they'll tell you, oh, it was this, I did that. And well, you got to try it. This is, it's really worked for me. It changed my whole life. And if we can say that about a diet, the gospel, the Jesus Christ, I mean, shouldn't that be the same kind of example, the same kind of message that people see your life? They go, I see something different about you. I mean, has your life really changed since you got saved? I mean, how do you have an encounter with the living God, Spirit of God coming to dwell in your life and not be changed by that? Now, I'm not saying we're perfect. I'm not saying the people at your workplace, the people you play soccer with or basketball with or knit with or whatever you do, I'm not saying that they're going to see a perfect person, but they're going to see someone who thinks at least to some degree differently. In my life, Please don't contact the people I went to college with. Oh man, that guy died. The guy I was in college, the guy I was after college, that guy died. I buried him in a baptismal pool in a Baptist church and out came a new guy. And the new guy, look, I've been hanging out with my granddaughter this last week and I'm learning all about what it means to be born again. I mean, she's so unstable, she's so dependent, she's so vulnerable, she's beautiful, and she's precious, but she's got a lot to learn. She can't even walk by herself, I gotta walk, my back is killing me, I gotta walk around with her, she's learning to walk. So we're born again, and we're learning to walk, and we're learning to live, because everything is new, everything we used to think was right is now changed, and God is changing my life, and it's real, it's not just theological, it's not just the Bible, it's real life. What better endorsement for the gospel than your changed life? We can argue doctrine all day long, but you can never argue with the power of a changed life. Amen, church? So the endorsement for Paul, he says, you are a living letter. And not endorsing necessarily Paul, not endorsing me and this ministry, but look what he says. You're known and read by all men. Everybody's watching. He says, clearly you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us. So Paul says, I'm just the delivery guy. I'm just effective to help bring this letter of Christ, which is you. He brings the gospel. People get saved. Their lives are transformed. Now you become the greatest salesperson for Christianity. Your changed life. We can argue doctrine all day long. You can argue evolution and creation and all that stuff with people. What they cannot argue with is your changed life. Can't argue with it. So you become the greatest salesman for Christianity, because you have a real, live, changed life by the power of God. And Paul says, we just delivered it. Paul says, the focus isn't on the minister. All the minister is is the delivery boy. 
The focus is on Christ. He's the one that brings the change. The endorsement is for him, for Christ. I think Mother Teresa picks up this idea in her quote when she says, I am a tiny pencil in the hand of a writing God, and he is writing a love letter to the world. I think she captures what Paul is capturing here. And this letter that God writes on your heart is not with ink, but it's by the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that does a work in your life. The letter of recommendation, that's ink. Spirit of God, that's internal. God is doing a work in your heart. Not tablets of stone. What do you think Paul's referring to when he says tablets of stone? What do you think he means? Ten Commandments, maybe? Yeah, the Ten Commandments written. Moses goes up on the mountain, spends time with God. God writes. Moses didn't write the Ten Commandments. It wasn't his idea. He didn't say, hmm, let me think of 10. I'm going to sum this up to 10 things that I can tell people to do. No, the Bible says it was written with the finger of God. Wrote the 10 commandments and they're written on tablets of stone. Literally, we've used the word, oh, it's, it's not written in stone, meaning it's flexible. But if something is written in stone, that means it's not flexible. It's not up for debate. It's not up for argument. It's not up for, you know, compromise. The 10 commandments were written in stone engraved in stone by the finger of God. They're not erasable. They're not changing. They're permanent. They're firm and they're clear. So that's what God, he wrote that. But then Paul says the ministry of the gospel, the new covenant is written on people's hearts, not with ink, but by the spirit. That's what he says next, written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God, not on tables of stone, but on tablets of flesh that is of the heart. No doubt Paul is referring in some sense to Jeremiah 31, 31, where God promises in the Old Testament that he's going to write his law on people's hearts. He's going to take it from being external to internal. And that makes a huge difference. Instead of an external constraint of behavior, the problem with the law, it's different than who I am. The old me, I wanted what I wanted. I broke the first commandment all the time. I wanted to be God. I wanted to make the decisions for my life. I wanted to determine where I went, what I did, who I talked to, who I didn't talk to. I was in control of my life. That's one of the greatest broken commandments of humanity is people want to be God. They want to rebel against anybody telling them what to do. That's the first commandment. You should have no other gods before me, including yourself. But when I got saved, God wrote his law on my heart. Now I wanted to do what pleased God. I wanted to obey him. I appreciated what he said before God told me what to do. And I said, that's exactly what I don't want to do. The more God told me what to do, the more I wanted to rebel. Look out in the world. Look at the world we live in. Do I have to make a case for this? You look in the world. If God says this way, the world says, no, we're doing something opposite. So people generally want to rebel against God. When a person gets saved, God takes an external constraint. Parents, you know how it is to give your kids external constraints. It's like the kid, I've told the story, his mom puts him in timeout. So he goes over, he sits in his timeout, and he says, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. His behavior was just being constrained. Matter of fact, part of the challenge of the law is the law entices us to sin. The minute God says, don't do that, we go, huh, all of a sudden I want to do the thing that's off limits. So the external law entices us, and it convicts us, it condemns us. So God does this new thing, Paul says, The letter that God writes is not on stone, but it's on the supple table of the heart. And verse four, 
He says, and we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. So Paul takes a minute to make sure he clarifies and says, I don't want you to think that I'm saying that I'm responsible for transforming lives. It's not me, he says. Get the focus off of the pastor, off of the minister, and on to Christ. Just because I'm telling you that you're my living epistle, you're my validation letter, you're my endorsement, I'm not saying that I did it, I accomplished it. Are you with me? Do you understand what he's saying here? He says, we have such trust through Christ toward God. My trust, man, I would have never entered ministry in the first day, day one, if I didn't know God was going to be with me. Look, let me clue you in, church. We've been at this 16 years, and I still have no idea what I'm doing. I have a promise from God. Jesus said, and lo, I will be with you always. And that's my promise. I'm a simple guy. I don't have a seminary degree, no training. I'm just kind of going, okay, Lord, I'm going to teach the word. Some of you guys remember when you were around. I'm just going to teach the word, and we're going to see what the Spirit of God does. And that's what we've done. There's this challenge, Paul says, my trust is not me, it's Christ. That's all of our trust. My trust is not what I can do or what I could put on my resume. My trust is not education I've gotten or my trust is not my training I've been through. All that, really, without the Spirit, without God actually doing the work, it's useless. I'm not saying seminary is wrong or bad, but seminary without the Spirit is useless. All of this is information. There's no power to it. So that's what he says in verse 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything is being from ourselves. If you like to take notes, you can write next to the word sufficient, write the word enough. That's what that means. You can look it up in your dictionary. It just means enough. Not that we are enough in ourselves. We always worry about being, am I going to be enough? Am I going to have enough? Am I going to be able to do enough? And you realize... The answer to all those questions is no. No matter how much education I get, no matter how many seminars. Look, when you plant a church, again, we started about 16 years ago. When you start a church, all the wackos come out of the woodwork to tell you how to do church and how to grow your church. And there's seminars and there's all this stuff on how to grow churches. Evidently, we don't need the spirit. We don't need God. We just need more information to grow the church. You know what I'm talking about? So we just started and someone I know asked me, so how many people come to your church now? Because of course, we always want to validate by numbers. Well, how many people come to church? Well, I don't know, maybe about 150 come to the church at that time. And uh, oh yeah, I remember 150. Really? Oh yeah, yeah. 200, that's hard to get to 200. Let me know when you want to break 200 at your church. Come on over, I'll tell you how to do that. I was like, oh, thanks a lot. Uh, not interested. Not as I'll just keep working it through. When I started in ministry, I'm just kind of pastoral confessions here, you know, just enjoying the word of God. The spirit of God's going to work in my life. I said, man, I'm reading this Bible and I think everybody needs to read the Bible. You remember that when you got saved and the Bible comes alive to you and you're like, wow, I never knew that was in there. And all of a sudden you're excited about it going, wow, you should read this. This is amazing stuff. So I didn't know what I was doing. Just getting into the Bible teaching the Bible and watching God work through that. But then we try to get in the way. You know, when we started out, we had a Bible and the Spirit. But then someone tells us, well, you need seminary education. You don't know this, but in a lot of circles, I'm not qualified for ministry. Did you know that? 
your pastor is completely unqualified for ministry. Some of you are on, yep, we knew that pastor. That's why we come here. Because the minute you feel like you're qualified, you're disqualified. You know how that works? The minute I start to be able to trust in my sufficiency, that now, oh, I needed God at first in my life, but now I'm enough. I've got training. I've been to seminars on how to grow the church. So, Steve, we see God working in your life. We see spirit moving, but you don't have a seminary degree, so can't use you. Well, man, I'm glad you're not God. (laughs) He seems to be okay with me being not qualified. And that's what Paul says here. I don't think of myself being qualified by, and you see what Paul's saying. Paul looks at his resume, you know, Philippians, it's, I got all these things. I had all this education under the best teachers and I had all this background and all these people I know I could name drop in my family. It's like being born into Billy Graham's family. You're like destined for ministry if you're born in the Billy Graham's family. But Paul says all that stuff doesn't matter. The family I was born into or all the education I had, he said, I consider it all rubbish relative to the excellence of the knowledge of God doesn't matter what association has ordained you if the Spirit of God hasn't anointed you. So we put such huge emphasis on this. You know, driving through Charlottesville a couple years ago, I saw a sign outside of a church. And again, please understand, these are easy mistakes to make. It reveals some way of how we think. So I'm not knocking them, just saying it caught my attention because their sign said, transforming lives through Jesus Christ. And normally you'd read that and go, yeah, no problem with that. But I recognized as I read that who the subject was. The church was the subject. The church was claiming to transform lives. You see how backwards that is? When you really think about it, it reveals something. Some of these things are very subtle in our lives. We say we trust God, but when it boils down to it, we really trust us. And as a pastor, I've had to come to grips with this over the years. We're not transforming lives. Jesus Christ transformed lives. And he uses the church to do it. But the power doesn't come from me. The power doesn't come from the pastor, the minister, the Bible study leader. The power comes from where, church? The church begins to think, ah, we started in the spirit, but now we need something more. Now we're bigger. When we first started, we could keep it simple. But now we need professionals. We need someone who's mastered divinity. What a joke that is. Who masters divinity? Anybody here has mastered divinity? You've come to grips with all of the divine? Man, I'm still learning. Are you still learning? Have you arrived? I haven't arrived. So we're in this together. Are you with me, church? And Paul, I'm thankful that he brings attention to this because it's out there. And we have to be very careful because the minute we trust in our ability, God says, okay, I'll step back. Go ahead. See how good you can do. There's a lot of churches where there's a lot of information but there's no spirit of God. Nothing else matters if you don't have the spirit of God. He said, who also made us sufficient. So Paul says, I'm not enough. I'll never be enough. I can't take enough classes. I can't learn ministry from a book. I'm not sufficient. So where does enoughness come from? Verse six, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Who made us sufficient? God did it. With God, all things are possible. Without God, good luck. Have at it. But with God, he doesn't call the equipped, as they say. He equips the called. He calls you, and then he gives you what you need. Each one of us. He's made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, of a new deal, 
of a new arrangement with God. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So when he says the letter, you know what he's talking about. The letter of the law, same thing he's been talking about all along, the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So you can imagine there's some coming to the church, some traveling teachers, and they come with their letters of commendation. And what they teach is bringing people back under a set of rules. Hey, if you keep these rules, you're right with God. I mean, Jesus is good, but he's not enough. You catch that? Jesus is good, but he's not enough. Law is what I do for God. Let me ask you a question. When you got saved, when God plucked you out of the miry pit of your sin, did he do it because you were keeping all the rules? No. Did he do it because you cried out to him for help and he saved you? Yeah. It was by the Spirit, not by the law. And as we continue to walk with God, see, sometimes we think, oh, we need God at the beginning, but now I've got to do some things to earn God's blessing. And Paul's making it really clear. We start with faith and we end with faith. It's always trusting God all the way through. We don't switch gears. And that's what they're trying to get people to do. Well, Jesus is good, but you got to wear a suit. Jesus is good and you got to carry the right Bible. Jesus is good and you got to keep these set of rules. And it's not that Paul is saying that anything goes, what the Spirit means. Sometimes people misinterpret this. Uh, see, Pastor, the letter kills, but the Spirit, you know, this freedom in the Spirit means we can do anything we want. That's not what Paul is saying. You understand he's talking about the written code. He says the letter kills. What does he mean by that? Well, if you think about it, the letter, what we do for God The letter of the law, every last commandment, every part of it is all to be kept. If you want to come to God based on your performance, that's what the old covenant is. You perform, God blesses. You perform, God blesses. You perform, God blesses. And we think that way. You don't even know you think that way, but you think that way. If you were ever driving to church and you got a flat tire and you said, oh God, what did I do to deserve this? You're thinking that way. You're thinking God is now punishing me because of what I've done or what I didn't do right. And we get into that mentality and it's just not right. It's old covenant kind of stuff. The letter kills. You come based on performance. God, I'll do this for you if you do that for me. The problem is God's always willing to do it for you, but you can't be consistent enough in your good behavior. You just can't do it. You might be good today, but what about tomorrow? Anybody had an off day this past week? Lose your temper? Get angry with the dog? We're just inconsistent. So God has made a new way. He's written his law on our hearts. He's internalized it. And Paul says, I'm a minister of the new relationship, the new agreement with God. And it's not one of the letter. All the law, all rules and laws can do is show you how wretched you are. That's the purpose. The whole Old Testament is meant to show you you can't come to God based on your good performance. The whole Old Testament shows that. And all it does when you see your guilt, that the penalty, you know it from the New Testament, the penalty, the wages of sin is what, church? Death. So all the law can do is show you, show you you're dead and show you the punishment for breaking God's law is death. That's all it can do. So we're all guilty. We're all condemned. So why do people get back under these legalistic-based teachings and ministries? The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
So we don't jettison truth. Truth is still absolutely essential. The word of God, still absolutely essential to our lives. But no longer, listen carefully, no longer our blessing based on our performance. The truth doesn't change, but God now deals with you as a child, as a son or daughter. Unconditional love. It's interesting to think about, you know, some people come from like a legalistic church background. Anybody come from a legalistic church background? And where you just always felt like a failure. You never could keep everybody. There's more rules to keep and there's more things I'm supposed to do. And I just feel like I just can't do it. And then you know you're not enough. I'm never going to be enough. And what's the way out of this thing? It's a burden that's just so heavy to keep. How do I get out from under that? Man, you receive the forgiveness of God, the ministry of the Spirit, the cross of Jesus Christ, and a new relationship. See, if you've been in a legalistic church and you've never been saved, you come out from under those regulations and rules that constrained you. Meanwhile, your heart always wanted to rebel, like that child sitting in timeout. I'm doing it, but inside of me, I'm angry and I'm resentful. I don't want to do it. So if that's all that there is, once you're out from under that, those constraints, you'll go do whatever you want. But a person who is saved, follower of Jesus Christ, well, let me put it to you this way. In Second Peter, Peter talks about false teachers and he says, they're like pigs that having been washed, return to the slop or like a dog that returns to its vomit. Wonderful word pictures, right? You can take, listen carefully, you can take a pig and you can clean it up, wash it up, take it to the state fair, make it smell nice, brush whatever hair it has, take it to the state fair, it'll win a blue ribbon. But once you get it home, back on the farm, what is that pig going to do? It's going back to the slop. It's going back to lay in the mud hole. Why? Because it's a pig and that's what pigs do. The only help for the pig is transformation. If you could snap your fingers and turn that pig into a a son or daughter. Well, now we've got a mud room at our house and it's called a mud room for a reason. My kids love to play in the mud, but, and as Christians, sometimes we get back to playing in the mud, don't we? But you can never feel right about it again. That's how you know you're transformed. You can try to go back to that old lifestyle. You can try to go back to those old people you used to hang with, people you used to run with. But if you've been transformed by the spirit of God, you'll never feel right there anymore because it's not who you are anymore. A leopard can change his spots by the power of God. So the law kills, but notice what he says, this contrast, but the spirit gives life. Man, I've been to churches where there's no life. There's a lot of rules and there's a lot of dependence on rules. The answer from the pulpit is we need more rules in the church. We got to get people to stop doing that. People are doing that. We need to stop doing that. The answer is the love of God, the spirit of God in people's lives. And when it comes to ministry, how do you know? Paul's remember answering this question. How do you validate ministry? The spirit gives life, fruitfulness. Remember the story of Aaron in the Old Testament, Aaron and Moses, they were leading the children of Israel. And people argue about, well, Moses and Aaron, we think everybody here could be in ministry. We think everybody here could do this, could lead like you're leading. So we think you're exalting yourself. And so God says, all right, we'll do a test here. I'm going to stop everybody. And I want everybody from the leaders of Israel to get their rod, get their staff that they walk with. One leader from every tribe, 12 of them laid out there. I want you to lay them out there before the Lord and we'll see what happens. And the next morning, everybody came out to see what happened. 
and 11 rods were just still bare and dead and blank. But one rod, Aaron's rod, it had overnight, it had blossomed and it had budded and it had grown fruit. Almonds were on it. It's a miracle. God gave life to Aaron's ministry. And so everybody else looked around and go, well, how are you going to argue with that? Aaron's like, yeah, hey, want an almond? You know, (laughs) sorry, guys. Just because a group lays hands on you and ordains you, no human group can give ministry life. Do you follow? We don't have the power to do that. Only God has the power to give life to a ministry. The giving of the law, 3,000 people died. Scary. The giving of the spirit, 3,000 people get saved. It all boils down to this real transformation. So you maybe have sat in church for your whole life, maybe for years and years. And church for you has just been about keeping the rules. You get out of church and you're around a different crowd and you're a whole different person. And there's been no real transformation in your life. And so I want to tell you that the law, it'll never bring you into the life of God. Rules will never do it. Any way we slice it, we cannot get out from under the miraculous, supernatural nature of the Christian life. And people will try. How do I look like I have a Christian life, but actually without submitting myself to God. You ever tried that? I want to look Christian, but I just don't really want to give my whole life to God. It'll never work. It'll just leave you frustrated, angry, discouraged, feeling like a failure. The only way, the only way is to open up your heart and let the real power of the living God come into your life. You're going to have to submit yourself to God. You're going to have to start with the first commandment written on your heart. I am not God. And I'm going to have to submit, yield myself to the one who is. That's where things start. 